Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. I've been asked many times, when are you going to write your book? And I haven't started in that, but I have never even researched any avenue to how to do that. Well, we should definitely talk. Yeah, my favorite yeah. thing to um favorite type of book to work on are people's memoirs and their personal stories. Well, and I, you know, mine is kind of linked to I had a brother when I was in eighth grade who was hit with a baseball in the head. And um my parents left. I'm number 10 of eleven. They left for nine months and dad came home once a month. Mom came home twice in that whole eight, nine months. But he came home with, um, uh, wasn't able to speak and never was, but had a tracheotomy catheter and needed multiple, you know, shots and stuff. So I became a nurse as eighth grade into ninth grade for him, you know, so my parents could be gone at the same time, never even thinking that um, um, I would ever become quadriplegic. But he uh, was such an inspiration to me because he lived 20 years, never being able to speak a word or do anything, just sit in his chair. And so he was really my mentor in it. So if I was ever to do a book, it would be to commemorate him as my mentor and help. He's my perseverance. You know, I think of him and mine has been 28 years. But his story is phenomenal of what he endured, but just always with a smile on his face and encouraging smile and stuff, um, you know, for 20 years like that, lived at home. And and so I just give all my credit for my perseverance to what I can do. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd say I only have one thumb that works but a mouth that won't quit. I just find people to help me. And he couldn't even do that. Right. You know, and I think, man, to be silently in a chair, just having everything had to be done for you. He was student, great student athlete being scouted by the White Sox. He was, uh, you know, super student. He was, uh, you know, honor all the time in a, in a, you know, good singer he had had, he had it all and at 20 years old you know he had this baseball injury and one of the first things he could communicate is he wanted to see if he could go somewhere to have surgery on his hand so he could hold a baseball again Mm. you know what an incredible you know it's like what and he I mean I played softball all the way through college but they brought him to every one of the home games all my brother's and seven brothers and those that were playing anything. He was there. They took him to church. And I thought, you know, wow, if he can maintain senility for 20 years, you know, like that, you know, why, what's so, people would say, why you? And it's like, why not me? You know, there's nothing special about who I am. There's, yeah. Anyway. Wow. So, um, yeah, the, I'm sure that gave you such uh, interesting perspective at such a young age about mm-hmm. resilience and mm-hmm. perseverance. Yeah, at eighth and I, you know, and then to have your parents gone at that time, you know, you know, 14 years old, 15, and uh, a lot of things happened. You know, I was the only girl with, four, with uh, five of my seven brothers um, at home. One was in college, and then Leon was hurt. And so, you know, you're the parent, you're the cook, you're the, you know, clothes washer, never at eight. And it was just that, well, it's just what you do because you're needed. You know? But right. um, never a, you know, poor me kind of thing. It was just my parents instilled such a caring kind of thing. And, you know, don't look back, just take what you're, you know, kind of bloom where you're planted and take what you have and make the best of it. So I really credit them so much. But anyway, enough of well, that. That that definitely comes across in just your 
your zest for life and your, um, your, your positive persona. I mean, this is the first time I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with you, but there's no question that, uh, people who know you and people who've interacted with you know, you are a positive, uh, go-getter type of person. And well, I think we were brought up that way. Don't you think the environment you're in instills a lot that we were never allowed to grumble or complain or whatever, you know, if we did, it was like, Oh, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And it was that we weren't left to, you know, deal with it and drop it, drop it. That's what my dad used to, I remember him saying with it, okay, you two, deal with it, now drop it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. yeah, so, um, okay, I want to go back to, because you were, you were always an active person. You said you played softball through college. And- well, I was, there were, I was number 10 of 11. And the first four were three girls and a boy, but then there were five boys, then me and another boy. So I had, I remember having one doll, but I played with every ball that was out there because that was, that's what you did when you're on the farm, farm, you know, when you've got free time, then you play. And we were fortunate. My dad was a superintendent uh, when he graduated from college. For the first 17 years. But by the time my oldest brother was, I think, like 14 or 15, he wanted to, you know, not be in town anymore. He wanted to live on the farm. And my grandpa had gifted all 11 of his kids with some farm acreage. And my dad had rented it out, but then decided that he was going to go on the farm. And he himself played baseball at the college level all four years and so he wanted to make that available for his kids and so when he got out in the farm he created three different size baseball fields and one for the littlest all the way up to high school and then in on Sundays from spring to fall all the boys in the area would come and practice and then my dad was coach for all of those teams because he had a boy on every level. And uh, he just started the Lincoln Way um, baseball, I don't know, is it a chapter or something? Um, And yeah, so that all small towns had their own teams at all these levels. And then my dad coached them all. So athletics was a very important part of us growing up. But also, he was so academic that you know, our ability to do well in school, plus also music. He was musical himself, and we always had a piano. All of us took piano lessons. We all played in the band. We all sang in the choir. So he instilled in that well-rounding part of it. And I think it was, um, you know, 4-H at the time, not Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. For us, it was 4-H on the farm. But that he wanted us to be involved in everything. And I think that just, I feel I was privileged growing up. We never, uh, we wore what we needed, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the signature clothing and that either. The priorities were church and family, and then, you know, sports and music, but, I just really credit them for helping me appreciate the well-rounded education I got. And that's what I wanted to do as a parent. It's like, I want to give my kids the same experience of being able to try what they wanted to try. But we had a little, like a park and at our house too, in Deer River, where my kids grew up, we had a half-court basketball court. We had a couple of horseshoe rings, a bonfire, a, a sand volleyball pit, and halogen lights up there so they could play whenever, a little cabin. But it was important for me to provide that opportunity for my kids, um, like what I had. I just thought every kid grew up like that, and I didn't realize how blessed and privileged I was. Right? It sounds like a dream of a childhood, and, and there's such a... Um a desire to go back to 
this simple right now and for uh, for people to unplug and to have acreage and to have that uh, easy access to play um with 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 how busy and over scheduled our lives are nowadays so what a what a dream you essentially had your own baseball team in the family we did almost you know and you know one of the fun things on the farm what do you do for fun when it rains well you play rubber ball in the rain that's what it is you wait till the storm is over and everything's still wet you put on go out barefoot or or slippery shoes and go out and play in the rain or you know, they say, what do you do for fun on the farm? Well, you go out and listen to the corn girl. What? Well, it does. When on a hot day, you could go out in the middle of the field and you have these little squirt squirts all over. But Can it was really? a simple thing. I always thought that was just an expression. No, no, no. In the right weather, when it's hot and humid, and they're going, you could go out there and you can actually hear like little, <laughs> little, little noises. And it sounds silly, but... You really can go out and listen to the corn go in the right temperature and in the season. Oh, but cool. because it's hot and humid in southern Iowa where I grew up. So, yeah, we enjoyed the simple thing. Parties were often at our house because we had a pool table in the basement, a ping pong table. And always had a stereo down there. And there was always food in the refrigerator. So often the parties were at our house because you could go outside or up in the barn, there was a basketball court. And, you know, growing up that way, in your own little sheltered world, you'd say, well, doesn't everybody do that? Right. <laughs> apparently not. If all, yeah, if only. <laughs> yeah, right. As I got older and then started teaching and doing that, even going to college, I realized, well, I was pretty privileged. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't name brand stuff and, we, I mean, if you walked anywhere with my parents, you would never pick them out of having a millionaire kind of lifestyle because it just wasn't showing. They had, we had ample resources, but it was never flaunted. Um, and it wasn't a power symbol for either of my parents at all. What good uh, mentorship they had. Mm -hmm. I want you to take me to um, the the accident. I know you were you've been active. I mean, you were playing softball. I understand you were a runner. I was. Yeah, ran in a couple of marathons. Yeah, actually, the night of my accident, I was going to begin training for the Twin Cities Marathon in the fall, and uh, the road that I normally trained on had mile markers so it was easy to you know increase the mileage and know how far it's going and they were doing road construction on it it's coming home late one night from uh, we were putting new roof on at our church and it was really really hot and I stopped you know to have a bite to eat with a friend and then going home I thought oh I can't run in the morning so I'm going to go up farther on the highway take the back road to my house and see if I couldn't, you know, find a route that I could start running in the morning. Well, I was going up kind of on a hill and a, another car was coming right down the middle of the road. And so I moved to the right to get out of their way. And there was no shoulder there because of the road construction. So the Ford Ranger that I was in went down into the ditch well, there was an approaching driveway, and so the front of the vehicle hit that, and it rolled 360 degrees to its side, so it got to the other ditch, and then it went end over end 360. So I was headed north, and all of a sudden, my vehicle was headed south in the opposite ditch. And there was a roll bar on top of the Ford Ranger. So that's what probably saved my life. But my seatbelt, for some reason, either it came off or or I flipped it off or something. But my head hit the driver's side window and broke it out. And then I flew out the passenger window. But the Ford Ranger was in this ditch um, 
which was muddy water from, you know, digging it up and stuff. So I flew out and landed with just my head above this mucky stuff. So my body was uh, submerged into the mud and wet of the ditch, but my head was up and it was about 12, 15, they said, in the morning. And no one stopped. And so I don't know if I thought of it afterwards, but somehow, well, God, it's you and me. And then about six hours later, a neighbor was driving by in his semi and saw the Ford Ranger dome light on, but nobody was in it. So he called 911. And first the fire truck came with three of my friends, of course, in it. And then they saw my head sticking out. So called 911 and the ambulance came. So they uh, stabilized me there and got me to Deer River, which was about oh, seven miles, I suppose, in the town. And then a doctor intubated me and then stabilized me. And then they airlifted me to Duluth um, where they did surgery. And that was the 21st of June. My first memory was the 4th of July. Uh, I guess I was in ICU in one of those circular beds to keep me, uh, keep my heart going. Um, my brother told me that he came to visit and he laid on the floor underneath the bed as they rotated the bed. And I was upside down and, and he said, we are talking and I have no memory of that at all. But the 4th of July, the nurse came in and said, it's Freedom Day. Let's get you out of bed and, and uh, get you outside. And I was looking out the window because my head is all I could move at that time. And I thought, Freedom Day? I, I can't even move. What? And then I turned at the foot of my bed um, right before the bathroom in my in hospital room was a crucifix because it was at um, St. Mary's in Duluth. Immediately, I thought of Jesus and my brother. And I thought, get out of bed, the suffering that those two people did, you know, and, uh, you know, is nothing. Get out of bed. And that's really the turning point, I think, for me. And that was just a couple weeks after my accident. But the perseverance that I learned from my brother and how ingrained we were in our spiritual life, that um, I just thought, you know what, it's something I'm supposed to do. It wasn't why me, but why not me? There's nothing special about me. Look what those two guys went through. And I don't know, I had such a strong family support. I have four angels of kids. Um, they came down on Sundays because they were busy with sports, but they'd go to Sunday school and they'd come and spend the afternoon with me. And um, my extended family, my siblings, um, my church family, my teacher's family, you know, the neighbors around where I live were so supportive. I never, ever felt that I was in it alone. And um, I'm not saying it wasn't easy. The first five years, I was walking by um, December. Um, I was walking with a platform walker. And I was due to go home for Christmas. And then I had these terrible pains in my neck and all through my body and spasm. And without checking diffusion, they sent me down to Minneapolis to have a baclofen pump put in. And that's like a stainless steel hockey puck that's implanted underneath your skin. And it has a catheter that went around the front and the side. It was inserted at the base of my spine. And it, um, it put liquid baclofen in my spinal column, which then was dispersed through my whole body. So it kept the spasms down. I wasn't spasming anymore but it was still intense pain. And that went on for about five years. Well, I, you know, in February, I finally was able to go home, but still intense pain. But I, all of a sudden I lost the ability to kind of know where my feet were. And it just got worse and worse. And so every time I talk about the pain, 
they would prescribe another kind of narcotic, you know, either um, oxycodone, oxycontin, um, morphine, everything. Nothing would stop the pain. It would um, just affected my mental capacity to really care about much. And um, wouldn't have been for my, my four angels that were my nighttime nurses. I had care for about 13 hours during the day. But <clears throat> at night, the kids had baby monitors in their rooms. They took turn doing that. And then um, after five years of that, um, my primary doctor said, well, there must be something going on. Here they found that my original fusion had collapsed. And it now look, looking back <clears throat> with another neurosurgeon, they figured that happened about Christmas time in 95. Wow. <clears throat> and so what they did is put like a Paul Bunyan hairpin, you know, and Paul Bunyan had a hairpin, it'd be big, but it <laughs> went over top of my spinal column. And um, that stabilized my neck. But the piece was about an inch and a half too long over the spinal column. And so after about 11 years of having that in there, I started getting terrible migraines and headaches and stiffness in my neck. And so they didn't want to do anything in Duluth. And so I went down to a new neurosurgeon in, in the Twin Cities at the U, Dr. Parry, and she said, well, you know, it's titanium. We can just cut the top inch and a half off. It's too long. That's what's, but I couldn't even turn my head. I had to turn my whole chair because um, it was too painful and I was getting, so I couldn't even eat because I couldn't get my hands up. Well, she cut the top inch and a half off of that in July of 2012 and uh, all of a sudden I was freed up and that's when I started wanting to drive all over town because I felt good it was you know they um the fusion was secure but now my head wasn't you know mm -hmm. things well then um I ended up by that time I was living in Grand Rapids my doctor here said the narcotics aren't good for you they're not going to stop the nerve pain. So they sent me to Hibbing for three weeks in the detox unit to get all of the narcotics out of my system. And once they did that, I had a clearer picture of what I wanted my life to be. Um, so I started moving around. Well, then that fall, um, I still had the back of and pump in. Um, the last time they did surgery on it, it kept slipping down. They just spliced the catheter, moved it the other side. Well, I had my first ever urinary tract infection that August. And um, they gave me a prescription to, you know, to get rid of um, mm -hmm. antibiotic. And uh, about two weeks into it, I kept getting real stiff under my neck and couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, so I went to the ER late at night. They said, oh, we must have given you the wrong antibiotic. So they said, we'll change it. Well, I got home and I never woke up. Um, at noon the next day, the PCA uh, actually called Freya and said, you know, your mom's going to wake it up. So they called 911 and I had a seizure, almost bit my tongue off. They sent me to Grand Itasca and um, had another seizure there. So they airlifted me to Duluth on a Friday. And I don't know, remember any of that. But by the next Tuesday, they had intubated me. So I was on a breathing tube, feeding tube, and several sensors around. And by Tuesday evening, um, the doctor, the physical medicine doctor that put, had the pump put in, um, told my kids that I wouldn't live through the night. And uh, <clears throat> later that night, there a, a different a neurosurgeon came in who was new to the hospital. He said, I can't figure it out. He said, the white count is real high in the lower body. 
said, does your mom have any metal hardware down there? And they told him that, well, yeah, there was a back open pump. And he said, it's meningitis. And so uh, he said, she won't live through the night without this surgery because my brain had been swollen. But he said, you know, if I survived the surgery, I could be hearing and vision impaired, incognizant, and on a respirator the rest of my life. So the kids would have to make a decision. Well, God had another plan because he looked, it was like about an eight-hour surgery, found my kids in the um, restaurant the next morning and um, looked them up and said, well, your mom made it through the surgery, but we're going to keep her another five days comatose. Well, um, I guess I pulled the breathing tube out and uh, my vision actually has gotten better. It's about 2020. But um, all of a sudden, but I don't remember a thing. I lost one full year of memory. I was there for 30 days. The twins turned 30. I sang happy birthday. I said, you sure are pretty girls. I wish I knew who you were. And uh, for a month, and then they put me on a medication to keep me from hallucinating. And I was still talking to three people at a time and nobody was there, laughing with everybody, but I didn't have a clue. Got home and the same doctor that sent me to Hibbing said, Myrna, you shouldn't be on that medication. All those medications do just the opposite for you. So she said, it'll take about a week, but you'll get a hustle. And so that first night I told my PCA, I said, well, let's cut it in half and see what it does. And didn't do anything. So the next night I said, well, I don't want to take it then. I let's cut it up. And the very next morning I woke up. I knew everybody, but I lost one whole year of my memory. I don't remember the summer before going with the kids for a week on vacation um, to a resort. I don't remember the November before that going to Iowa for a wedding. I have no memory of either the surgery in July or being in the hospital for a month. But um, I lost a significant amount of weight, but I just said, well, what happened? You know, it was a blessing to me. But to me, it was another spiritual journey. There was twice in my life I probably should have died. But um, somebody had another plan and was like, okay, well, let's see what this go-around is going to do. It was really quite amazing when I look back and I think of it. But um, the only memory I have of that time in Duluth was I heard music and flowers. You know, that one movie, I See Dead People. I didn't know none of that. But it was a pleasant time of lots of music and lots of flowers. I don't know what that means. It sounds kind of scary to say that to people. But to me, there was another realm that I was in. I was being protected. And now it was a choice of, okay, now what do you want to do with your life? And at that point, that was 2012. And then that's when I started doing, after that, doing a lot more moving around town, noticing how many other people with different abilities that had struggled in their life. And I thought of my brother, Leon, who, who could not talk, couldn't walk. Um, so I thought, man, it must be something. Well, then in 2015, um, I had learned that there were vehicles with the technology now that I could maybe drive, even though I only had one thumb that worked. You could do it with your eyes. There all kinds of things. So I wanted to do that researched it and found that it was really expensive, you know. But then my kids and a bunch of friends said, well, we'll do a fundraiser. Well, interestingly enough, way back in June of 95, 16 hours after I had my accident, my good friend and neighbor, uh, whose field I ended up in his ditch, he became paraplegic because of a motocross accident. Well, Lee and I had coached Kristen Frey's softball team or baseball team um, when they were in kindergarten, and we became good friends, whatever. We're still friends. But 
he was airlifted to the same hospital, uh, had the same surgeon, the same rehab doctor, only he was there two weeks and I was there seven months. So anyway, when it came to me wanting to have the girls, the kids wanting to do this fundraiser, I said, well, I want to include Lee because I want to get Lee um, an accessible four-wheel drive pickup. And so we were going to have a little fundraiser and we decided to do that. We should have, see if we could do a Guinness record of to get people there to do it. So that's where the fundraiser became called Myrna Lee Mania. Myrna and Lee Mania, kind of a exciting, crazy little event. And um, Kristen, Christopher and Dana Reeves had done 149 wheelchairs driving in succession for one minute. So I said, well, let's do 200. And they said, well, okay. Well, then New Zealand did 249 for two minutes. And I said, well, let's do 300. And everybody laughed. They said, it's not going to happen. So I went around to all the nursing homes, assisted living, anybody I knew, trying to get them to come out and help break this record. Well, we took 100 manual chairs there to help break the record for friends that said they'd help. But 251 people showed up in their own wheelchairs that day. So we broke a Guinness record, 351 wheelchairs rolling in succession for three minutes. Well, afterwards, these people, tears in their eyes, you know, thank you. This is the most fun we've had. And Lee and I looked at each other like, are you serious? You know, so what we decided to do is do little um, like town hall meetings in four different communities uh, within our county to see why we don't see all these people. You know, what are the barriers? Mm -hmm. And um, what we found out was that transportation is the number one barrier for all of these folks. They have no way to get there. So you could do medical rides through your insurance, but not socially. And so we decided that we needed to make an awareness. And uh, number one was transportation. Two was getting into and within buildings. Three was sidewalks, cutaways, curbs, and trails. And number four was awareness. Because if you're not in a mobility-challenged um, situation, you don't really care or know, you know, what the problems are because it doesn't affect you personally. Sure. And so we started a nonprofit called Mobility Mania because it was. It was just crazy. And so that started in 2015. And then about that same time, I'd been working with Frank Duma from the Humphrey Institute on solutions in our community for transportation. And uh, with the Blannon Foundation, we're trying to find different things. You know, they tried volunteer drivers. They tried different things and nothing really took hold. Arrowhead Bus does a great job of transit during the day, but it doesn't come up to where I live past five o'clock. And it doesn't, it's very inaccessible, available in the weekends. And so that's when you have most of your activities, evenings and weekends. Right. So then uh, Frank told me about the connected and automated vehicles um, and that the governor in 2018 was going to start um, a council. And he said, Myrna, you need to apply because we need a spokesman with the mobility challenge. So I did, and I was nominated to that um, governor's position, and there were 15 of us on there. Mm -hmm. And then about the same time <clears> that I was asked to apply for the Minnesota Council on Disability. So at that level, I learned about other mobility challenges like vision impaired, hearing impaired, mentally challenged. And so it became with those two commissions my awareness and really increased advocacy for other people with challenges. And I thought, you know, it's finding the right people with the right passion because they're the ones that understand it. And once you do that, 
then we're all better together. And so you find the right people that can do the right things. Do the um, uh, Council of Connected and and uh, Automated Vehicles, they were putting out what they call a cab challenge. And they were making grant opportunities through MnDOT and uh, connected with the cab office, the governor's level, to put out for, you know, kind of creative stories, well, uh, or projects. And um, I remember the people there on the council, they were big executives and CEOs, really bright people when it came to that. And and they said, well, you aren't saying much. And I said, well, you know, why are you guys all here? You know, and they were talking about all oh, the fuel efficiency and the environment and technology and that. And they said, well, why are you here? And I said, because I can't drive, you know, and then it's like, you know, that should be your main reason. It's not for all of you that can, you know, drive and just say, oh, I'll take this cool thing. I can't get a ride. And when I wanted to get my own vehicle, all of a sudden, these self-driving vehicles came up. And I thought, why would I do that with my own when I could just sit and enjoy? So um, I was telling my story about how difficult it is in Grand Rapids because we don't even have an accessible taxi here. So I couldn't even rent. I have my own vehicle, but what about those 251 people that don't? And uh, and so um, in order to use a medical transport that's accessible, for a social reason, you pay for it out of pocket. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. costs $25.50 to get in the vehicle if you're in a wheelchair for a social ride, $2.25 a mile, $20 an hour wait time if you're out for dinner for two hours or at a concert, and then another $25.50 to get back in the vehicle plus $2.25 a mile. Well, it might be $10 a mile, but that's $91 because you're in a wheelchair. And that's cash paid up front. And so... People in nursing home and assisted, they only get to keep about $110 a month. Well, they've used it all on their transportation, haven't even done anything yet. And so when I was learning about that faith, I thought, no wonder we don't see people out at social events, you know, at at concerts, at their kids' sporting events, at their concerts, at you know, at the Rife Center for concerts or out to church on Sunday, they can't get there. And so that really opened up a whole realm of advocacy for me because I want to make sure that everybody has the quality of life that's available to them. And uh, being in a wheelchair should not pose a resistance to your ability to have the same quality of life that somebody that doesn't have that challenge does. And I, I heard an interesting um, comedian who had actually cerebral palsy, and she was, you know, obviously speech uh, challenged on there, and that, but she was asked, you know, well, you suffer with cerebral palsy. She said, well, I have cerebral palsy. I don't suffer with cerebral palsy. I suffer with the people around me who who, uh, think I'm less of a person because of it. And I thought, you know, that captures it. Mm -hmm. I, I, sure, would I like to be up running marathons again? I'd love to, but... My grandkids don't know me any other way. For 28 years, my wheelchair doesn't define who I am. And as long as I can be provided opportunities, I choose to take them. Now, there's people that maybe don't have that attitude and think, you know, why did all this happen to me? I'm never going to amount to anything now. All my dreams are shot. Well, you, have, you, you just have to learn life differently. 
and you know your attitude makes such a huge difference but um you know it kind of bloom where you planted what, what i was brought up with so what are you going to do with it right you got and a I, challenge i noticed in your email signature it reads we serve a cool jesus and an awesome god and i thought wow your faith must have been such a strong hold that has carried you through because you've been you've been strong in your faith since you were a child and you were raised in a family of faith correct yes yes no it's everything i always tell everybody well god's got my back you know i um i i really have no fear i i i don't want to hurry up my end of life here on earth but i have no fear what it is i have a uh, a wonderful image of seeing all of my family members that have passed on already um and my friends but um it's just one day at a time yesterday's gone none of us are promised tomorrow so why not make the best of today and you know every night before i go bed i in my prayers i include thank you for today and a minute i open my eyes and yes thank you for another day so it's that whatever happens have you read that book the dash and uh it was about um it's a poem and it's about it's not about what you do here um but it's it's about that dash between the day you were born and the day you're gone what's your dash mm. what did you do and for me it's like my dad always said you know why are you doing something you know if you don't know your why are you just following the crowd well yeah and i think of young kids now that you know get sucked into something but we were always told if it doesn't fit what you want to do why would you do that why would you put yourself at risk and i you know i not that i didn't do dumb things and follow along the crowd too but it was that little you know it's like um the spirit nudge in tabby is like yeah, you know and that probably isn't the right choice that compass and i believe so strongly that that not that you know you know people said oh how could god have let this happen to you he didn't have anything to do with it it was an accident you know but it's my attitude yeah i was going to ask you know the everyone knows the cliche everything happens for a reason and of course that's easy to say when uh you've haven't experienced much hardship in life what do you say to that quote well you know i don't think god had an intention in my life plan that okay now at 45 we're going to put her in a wheelchair and slow her down see how she handles that no you know it's like stuff happens life happens you know did i really need to go out and check out that route that night could i have just gone home and then been safely in bed instead of you know in the ditch yeah i made a choice and we live with those choices that god's fault it's uh, that's why you know we're all got given free will it's what you do with that but it's that it's fault that stuff happens but he guides you to to me he provides that spirit nudge you know i think my i have a down syndrome niece ruthy who's what 53 now but when she was just a teenager her dad was a pastor and i i used to go there a lot near elderly and i asked her one time i said ruthy what did you think of that sermon because it was on the trinity the triune god and she said oh katie that's easy god's like my big daddy jesus is my best friend and the holy spirit makes me make good choice helps me make good choices and her dad said so ruthie why didn't you preach today but i remember <laughs> that all along it's like you know i think of him as my ultimate and i really love my dad respected him but it, he is like my 
my ultimate guiding fact. And Jesus, I talked to all the time just because he was on earth like I was, you know, and he went through a lot of suffering and stuff, which made him stronger. You know, he was mad on the cross, but did he give in to it? No, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Bring it on and we'll make the best of it. And, and then the Holy Spirit is like, you know what? When I know I'm doing something I'm not, that's that spirit nudge. That's that, you know, Myrna, that's probably not something you shouldn't be doing. But either you do it anyway, live with the consequences, but then you fall back on talking to Jesus about it, and then God's got your back. So to me, Ruthie put it in such a nutshell for me, and uh, I've remembered that all along. It's like, okay, you know, so, God's got my back. I can talk to Jesus and listen to my gut. And I tell my kids, keep God in your head and a song in your heart and then go with it. So, you know, yeah, do I have bad days sometimes, but they don't overwhelm me. Those five years under drugs, well, actually the first 10 years, I was still under narcotics. That was the closest thing to horrible my psychiatrist, when she was trying to talk me into going to giving, said, Myrna, I know you're in there. You know, the person I see now, I knew you on two feet, and I know she's still in there. And when I went to Hibbing, I was there with teenagers and early 20-year-olds. And these kids were all able-bodied, but they were already dependent on drugs and alcohol. And I said, what are you, what are you guys doing with your life? I said, I I could only move my thumb and talk. And I said, you guys could do anything you want, but you're choosing that substance to alter your life. So we became our own little focus group there. And when I got rid of all that in my system, I still have the pain from my chin to my feet. It feels like a human pincushion. Um, my bones are already cold in the inside. I'm riveted with stuff putting clothes on and off it's like really rough sandpaper against my skin i could let that overwhelm me and get into stupid habits again or that's why i choose to be busy because if i could keep my mind occupied and i can keep that clear conversation with jesus and know that god's never going to leave my back then i just have to pay attention to my spirit nudges and let life happen. Um, and it does. My my motto, everybody said, well, how do you, why are you involved in all these things? Well, I like to network the people for, you know, or oh, maybe United Way's got some people that are ideas there, or, you know, I'm chairman of the Rife Arts Council. Um, but I get to greet at the door. I can't be an usher, can't do much else physical, but I can greet, greet at the door. And I meet so many friends. My dad said, every stranger is a friend you haven't met yet. And he was just wise, so wise on his little things that I remember he was telling me. Yeah. Um, and then he just said, oh, you're born 20 years ahead of your time. But it catches up. Because when, when my brother Leon was, he couldn't walk, talk, anything. And I didn't have a driver's license, but I saw the Jetsons. They came out about in 53 or 54 and 63 or 4. And uh, I said, gee, Dad, if I had one of those vehicles, you know, Leanne and I could go everywhere. You wouldn't even have to go with it. We could just go. We have it. Oh, honey, you're born way ahead of your time. Well, look, now we have Go Marty, the <laughs> self-driving vehicle. And I said, see, there you go. Don't ever quit dreaming. And so my motto is dream big. And I call it God, but then give it to your spiritual guidance, whether it's a creator, Muhammad, Baha'i, whoever, just give it to your spiritual guidance. And if there's approval up there, the right people just kind of fall in front of your path. Mm -hmm. And when you get enough people that are following your passion, it's like a train you can't stop. Well, then you just have to make a plan and get her done. So but I don't do anything without this. I have a lot of big dreams, and some of them never pan out. But the ones that do are the ones that 
that you really find somebody else's passion. So that's why I tell everybody, I don't do anything. I don't cook. I don't clean. I don't have to worry. You know, I don't have a spouse now, but, and my kids take care of my grandkids. So I get up in the morning. I'm free to go all day, come home at night, and then they put me to bed. So um, to me, I've got a life that is a freedom life for me. And people look at me, and I usually put about between 12 and 1300 miles on my wheelchair because then I'm, I'm independent. I don't have to wait for somebody to drive my vehicle. I don't have to be on their time or whatever, but um, I just show up and enjoy what's going on. So, um, and I don't do it just, you know, to show everybody, Oh, look what I can do. No, I'm curious about if there's something going on, I want to be there. So I just show up. Such a beautiful perspective. And I I had a previous guest on the podcast who had a near death experience. And I, I asked her a a question I would, I would love to pose to you too, because it's, there is a lot of people say there's life before an accident and there's life after because you have a, a perspective shift. What is it that you see that most of people of society get, uh, caught up in or things that are silly or frivolous and you'd like to just you know uh, encourage them to let go of not sweating the particular small stuff or are there things that you that you notice that you would love people yeah you know um are you familiar with the story of mary mary and martha uh in the bible and you know martha was the doer around making dinner cutting up everything Jesus came to visit and Mary sat down and listened to him. And Martha got all ticked off at her, like, you know, come on, get up and help me do this. And and she was content to just sit there and listen to Jesus. Well, I was a Martha before my accident. And uh, because it was just easier to do it myself. And I was involved in lots of stuff. Technology was huge for me in the classroom. Did a lot of lobbying, you know, legislatively and all over the nation with different projects I was in and still active in sports and getting my kids everywhere. When I had my accident, I became a captive audience for my kids' friends. They'd come over and they knew I didn't sleep much at night and they'd sleep over on the weekends and show up in my bed and start telling me stories. And for me, what it did is like, Ah, now I know what it's like to be a Mary and what a beautiful life it is to be the listener and gain the trust of people that it stayed confidential. It was between me and them. But I understood, I got it, what it was like to be so busy with everything that you forget to listen. Mm. And now I think one of the things I enjoy most is when I'm, at Grace House volunteering at night. Um, I have a sleep staff, you know, another volunteer that comes and just sleeps. If I need help, I can call Dave and we we come and help unlock the door with it. But I'm a captive audience for those people there that need to talk. I take my computer and work on my Shutterfly books for the grandkids, but they know I'm there and awake. And so they'll get up to go to the bathroom and do you have time to talk? Sure, you know, and it's it was a forced thing for me to be in a wheelchair, not to be able to get out, not to move around. But when I look at before and after, what I enjoy most now is hearing other people's stories and sharing and, you know, people that are desperate, they've lost everything. And it's like, I don't know what to do, you know? And then they look at me and they say, well, how did you do it? How did you get out of it? It's an opportunity to share that there is hope out there for everybody. Um, my wheelchair, like I said, doesn't define who I am inside. You just find a way, whatever happens to make that work. So for me, I call my wheelchair a blessing in disguise 
because I still can get around. Uh, maybe not the way before, but it 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 kind of gives an opportunity for people to talk. You know, you meet them, and they say, "Well, you know, do you mind? May I ask what happened to you? Why you're in a wheelchair?" And all of a sudden, when you open yourself up to um, I don't know, maybe vulnerabilities or something. But if you're willing to share, all of a sudden, everybody has a story and they want to share and they want to be listened to. But not a whole lot of people want to take the time to just say, oh, yeah, I've got a few minutes. You know, what do you want to talk about? And, you know, you don't have to give them any solutions. But to me... I remember some of my favorite visitors when I was an inpatient. My brother-in-law would come and he said, Katie, I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to talk, but I'm going to sit here and read. If you got something you want to say, because I didn't know. It was a crazy world. All of a sudden, everything was taken away. But I look back and I remember, yeah, yeah, they were just there. Mm. And that's what I like to be for people at Grace House or my youth group kids that I mentor for confirmation. You know, I'm just here. I'm at church when you need me, but I'll come to your ball games. I'll come to your concerts. I'll meet you wherever you are to know that, you know, like God, I'm always by your side. And if you need somebody to talk. So I became from a Martha to a Mary. Long story short. Sorry about that. but. Um, no, that's so beautiful. And it's, uh, I mean, you're, you're speaking my language because I clearly love listening to people's stories. I think there is something, you know, that if you can disarm people and people might feel that it's disarming, if you are in a wheelchair, there's already, they feel a connection of vulnerability that they can share. And it is a gift to be able to receive that amount of authenticity and vulnerability from people. And one that a lot of people might overlook is thinking of a, a way in connecting with people, but so beautiful to be able to uh, appreciate just the joy of listening and hearing people's stories. You just never know what somebody's day has been. You know, you might see them in an explosive situation. You might see them crumbled up in a corner crying. You might see him, see him, you know, being happy and ridiculous and crazy. But there's a behind the story of that, you know. And if you give them the time, they want to save, they want to get it out. But there's pretenses that they have to put on some kind of show or hide from that. And, you know, we've all got vulnerabilities. And I'm not perfect by any mind. Done some really dumb things in my life, but that's okay. Most everybody else has too, you know, and it's that you put them on an equal playing field. They say, oh my gosh, you know, you don't know what I've gone through. No, I don't, but I'll listen mm -hmm. and I'll help you sort through it if there's anything I can do. But, you know, call me if you're ever feeling like this again, I'll listen. Um, and that's, I think, what what my wheelchair and this accident has done. Well, it's been 28 years, and I've had 32 surgeries. So it's not like it's been an easy time, but it's been, you know, I learn something every day about myself, about other people, about what I want to be when I grow up, and the things that I can do and the things that I can't. But it's okay, you know. We don't we don't have to know. I I feel sorry for these kids that feel pressured when they get out of high school. They're just gotta they're supposed to know what they want to do. Well, right. Wow, it's a long time, yeah. and and it it always changes. You know, it can change. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, I imagine that losing uh, an amount of privacy was a big shift. And, and so 
and uh, for so many reasons for just wanting some solitude for uh, you know humility purposes all of that and so um is that something that is still difficult um to to come to terms with well after having 32 surgeries there's not a whole lot private about myself <laughs> i'm pretty transparent there's not a whole lot that bothers me and i sometimes say things that are inappropriate that my kids say mom stop <laughs> so um you know i guess my life is pretty much an open book i don't have much to hide and like my grandkids when Tammy and Louis were, you know, little and then I went to school with them and then preschool with Kingston too. But, you know, then after we're done talking and showing now that we go out in the hallway and they get to drive my drive me in a wheelchair up and down the hall. But they get to ask any questions they want. And like youth groups and that too, from other churches because they of course they all want to know how I go to the bathroom. And I remember Tammy, the first time she said, go ahead, ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> you know? And then I said, well, yeah, you know, I they, I go just like you do. It's just somebody has to stand me up and pull my pants down and put me back on the toilet and they have to wipe my butt and all of that. And they giggle and then they're oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I let the kids, you know, Okay, show them how I eat. You know, I've got this little hand thing and a, a bent spoon because my hands have been fused straight now. And and so the grandkids will take it out of my bag and and they put it on. Yeah, and we have this spoon. And so, you know, my grandkids don't know me any other way. And so when I'm around them or other kids now too, they know I always have a candy bag. And they know my chair is a horn. And if you turn it a certain way, it goes round in circles. Not much my kids in church or the kids that I go on route in the summertime, especially. Oh, here she comes, you know. I don't know if they want to talk to me or if they want candy. But... <laughs> you all know I love stories. I also love adventure, nature, photography, and travel. Lake and Company magazine encompasses all of that. It is a socially conscious magazine carefully curated with a give back message that supports adventure, innovation, conservation, and community built around lake culture. You guys, Lake and Company magazines are gorgeous. The photography in these issues showcases unique places and events nationwide that make me want to pack my bags and head out for adventure. Not only that, they include powerful stories from people like you here on this podcast, everyday people who do something extraordinary to make the world a little brighter. Bonus, Lake & Company magazine was created in my beloved hometown, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Head to thelakeandcompany.com and grab your subscription. That's thelakeandcompany.com. I think it speaks to how so many of us are have become a human doing instead of a human being. Yes. And when you have that pause that, you know, and and you are able to slow down and be so present, barely mm -hmm. everyone in your life has found that as such a gift and something that so many people need. It's just that present. Well, it's just, yeah, it's so easy to be in such a rush that you just don't know. You just don't, yeah, whatever. Life passes and all of a sudden a week's gone and you go, whoa, mm -hmm. you know, what did I do? Mm -hmm. What did I accomplish? And for me, I just have all the time in the world to do whatever I want to do. And so that's a blessing for me. But I mean, I there are people who have, that same opportunity that don't ever get it. Yeah. So they're in denial or they're in self-violation or something. I don't know what it is. Or they're continually searching and never anything is right. Or just slow down a little bit and, you know, just enjoy 
the time you have around, you know. Um, and I think before that, not that I didn't enjoy things and fighting, but I was so busy, you know, making everything happen for my kids and for myself, my students in the classroom and for the world, you know, I thought I had to save everything. And then all of a sudden it's like, now, you know, somebody else can do some mm-hmm. of that. Just enjoy it. But oh. All right. Well, I look forward to staying connected. And Yes, me too. Uh, Thank you so much. It's yeah. Been- thanks, Lindsay. Connecting with you. Take care. Okay. Bye bye.